true freedom is defined in so many ways by so many people. And it probably means something different to each one of us. And I think the most common definition in my tradition with its Zen roots is being mindful, being awake, being present in daily life, in all activities. And many Buddhists think of it as this, of uh, true freedom as the fruition of this path, as nirvana, as enlightenment. And personally, I think of awakening in these moments of learning to be fully present as a process rather than an event. And rather than experiencing true freedom as a state of being, I get inspiring and impermanent moments and glances and minutes and sometimes even hours of experiencing true freedom. And one of the reasons that most of us go on retreat is because the conditions on retreat are conducive to cultivating these times of simply resting in the vastness and joy of emptiness and oneness, as well as turning toward our pain and our dis-ease and all the challenging events and states of mind that we face. And on retreat, we find a different way of opening to it all. And I'm a firm believer in retreats because I think they so accelerate our practice for this reason. And when I think of my own experiential glimpses of what I'm referring to as true freedom, what seems to describe them is two things that seem initially paradoxical, but I'm going to ask you to bear with me. And the first is the ability to take refuge in myself. And the second is to experience the joy of non-self. So let's begin with taking refuge in oneself. And this is the essence of the meaning of the first of the three great refuges that La talked about last night. I take refuge in the Buddha. We don't take refuge in a historical figure by any means but we take refuge in the Buddha, in the potential to wake up in that possibility of awareness that's within each of us, in our capacity to wake up to the divinity of our own true nature, in our capacity to believe in our own true nature. And we take refuge in our capacity to understand what it means to be a true light onto ourselves, to find this unshakable grace and calm and steadiness that we can rest in. And over time, with constancy of practice, we slowly develop faith in our capacity for these moments to repeat themselves and for this capacity of awakening itself. And when this faith in our own capacity for awakening begins to live in the forefront of our awareness, it's a powerful reminder of what we're doing here. It's a reminder of the unshakable freedom of heart that we are cultivating. And it's that freedom of heart that leads to compassion. And compassion doesn't always call for these grand or heroic gestures. It simply asks us to find in our hearts the simple but profound willingness to be present with a commitment to end sorrow and contribute to the well-being and ease of ourselves and others. A word of kindness 
a loving touch, a patient presence, a willingness to step beyond our initial fears and reactivity. These are all gestures of compassion that can transform a moment of fear or pain for any of us. And these are the moments that in my mind build true world peace. And ordinary people like us can make such a difference in a world desperately in need of our help. And compassion is about building bridges of understanding Recently, uh, Tara mentioned last night that I was a police officer for 20 years. And recently, in my community, there was an officer-involved shooting under very, very questionable circumstances. Uh, very, very painful. Um, community is in a great deal of pain about it. Officers who are friends of mine are in a great deal of pain about it. And there was a community meeting held to um, begin the healing process. And it was very scary for me to speak out because it almost sound like, sounded like an evolved mob mentality uh, was happening. And I said that I really thought that this tragedy needed to be something that started a bridge between the community and the police that served it. And that the police really needed to feel the community, the family's sorrow and grief and hold that and express that. And that the community needed to understand that this isn't like a TV show where an officer goes out and goes bang, 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 bang and shoots up five people and comes back the next week to do it all over again. I think the TV shows right now about police are the most horrible thing that police have going for them because it's not like that. I don't know of anybody, any police officer who has taken the life of another person, even in circumstances where there was clearly no other choice, who ever got over it. And so when I mentioned that the officer needs our compassion, as well as the family, people got up and walked out. Um, it was very hard. And I'm committed to and convinced that restoring community peace and trust is dependent upon the healing of everybody in this situation, including the family, the loved ones, and the entire community surrounding the young man. Two of my students are, uh, were roommates of this young man, so I know their pain very, very intensely. And it also includes the officers on the police department, those who are defending his actions and those who aren't defending his actions. But we have to have trust and faith in the knowledge that we do this work not only for our own sake, but for all of humanity. And so many of us buy into the myth of our small, wounded selves. And instead of regarding ourselves as simply angry or messed up, we could identify as one with many who are working to heal the universal illness of violence and aggression. And this is a very important shift of alliance. In this shift of alliance, the shift of allegiance, we could let go of our attachment to a wounded self. 
we could choose to side with our courage instead of our conditioning and our neuroses. And the benefit of cultivating an open and generous heart is that we will then experience a sympathetic world no matter where we turn or what we are confronted with. And this kind of happiness gives us tremendous access to a bank of energy that was previously bound up in self-absorption. It's almost miraculous. And to cultivate this kind of heart requires returning to trusting in the simple truths of every moment, not just once, but over and over and over again, rather than always leaning into that world of attachments and shoulds or requiring things to be different than they simply are. Things can turn on a dime. I was on the most exciting adventure of my lifetime, you know, Solo motorcycle trip, four weeks, had been all the way from Madison, Wisconsin, to the west coast, up, to the, up through the north and south rims, saw two new baseball stadiums that I hadn't seen. Uh, I, uh, it was just incredible. I had gone up to Zion, camped and hiked in Zion and Bryce, and was right in the middle of Yellowstone, probably 100 feet from my campsite. When I went down, and everything turned on a dime. And uh, there have been several opportunities as a result of, of that accident, uh, several opportunities. I was one of two people competing for the chief of police job in Madison, Wisconsin, before I retired. It was down to two of us. And I didn't get it. And yes, there was disappointment, but it's the best thing that ever happened to me my life would look so different than it does now. And all the moments when we find the courage to meet life as it is, rather than searching for what may be or should be, those are moments when we take refuge in this path of awakening rather than our habitual patterns and delusions. This path is about nurturing a deep knowing of our interdependence with each other. And when we step out of our divisions, and when we see how our lives are intertwined in every moment, whether in suffering, or in hatred, or in joy, or in love, we begin to de develop the courage and the confidence and the compassion required to make a difference. And this energy builds on itself. I do a lot of workshops right now with mental health workers and emergency workers on working with trauma. And this kind of trauma is called lots of different things. It's called vicarious trauma. And one of the interesting terms to me is compassion fatigue. And the reason it's so interesting to me is when I found this path, I was burnt out. I was fried. I was work I'd been a police officer for seven years. I was already fried. My heart was pretty shut down. And what I found with time was a different way to do the same job, a way to do the job with some compassion. And what I found is that's an energy that builds on itself. So compassion isn't a finite pie where you use it up. 
Um, it is something that builds upon itself. It brings energy, and there's an infinite amount available once you start to let go of the armor around your heart. But most important of all, this path trains us to let go of our tendency to flee. And we discover for ourselves what it means to be fearless and upright in our lives with the courage to unconditionally embrace everything, the wild and chaotic thoughts, the racing mind, the beautiful sunshine, the lovely and difficult people, the lovely and difficult emotions, the times in our life when our world crumbles as it inevitably will, the times in our lives when people praise us, as well as the times in our lives when people blame us. And the motivation for many of us to explore a spiritual path is a somewhat curious blend of both disappointment and insight. When we don't have the confidence that our own hearts and minds can be a place of safety for us, we usually are seeking refuge outside of ourselves in some way. And sometimes our search is very skillful and sometimes it's not so skillful. In some ways, the motivation uh, for looking for somewhere to lean, to looking for somewhere to rest, is quite noble. We're looking for a sense of ease, a sense of refuge. And we often project this refuge outside of ourselves. And there's no blame or judgment in this. We've been exposed to a cultural delusion and cultural conditioning that promotes leaning and fleeing from what is. We'll be rescued by something or somebody else. Something outside ourselves can meet our needs. Or if we buy enough products, we won't face the impermanence of age, right? Um, but safety and rescue are always somewhere else. And we're bombarded with messages that we need more and that we need to become more. And judging this tendency in ourselves only heaps suffering upon suffering. And it adds an extra and unnecessary layer of suffering when we judge ourselves that, that we really don't need, that isn't necessary, because life events alone will present enough of that. And at the root of this need to become, to become more is this sense of lack, this sense of insufficiency. And it's often accompanied by the thought or belief that we need to earn this refuge. We need to earn this place to rest and this time to rest. And then the promise is, is that once we earn it, we can rest. Um, when I had my motorcycle accident, I was in just uh, tremendous pain for the first Oh, eight weeks, uh, the first four weeks were, were really challenging. And during that time, I also developed an allergy to the pain medication and then got the flu. And so it, it was just kind of a nightmare. And I was amazed at how I still went to, you're not getting enough done. You could be using this time better. Yeah. <laughs> it was amazing to me. So I had to really just have a little chat with myself and say, hey, guess what? Your job right now is to, your only job is to watch your mind. That's your only job. 
And none of us are strangers to the unstable, unpredictable, changing nature of life. Uh, life is whimsical, and it doesn't offer the safety or enduring peace that we search for. It's not wrong or bad. It's just the way it is. And at times, that's quite frightening for all of us. And that's why we're invited to turn inward, to have faith in our ability to heal whatever pain we carry. And the body has been a tremendous teacher for me in that. I could literally, when I slowed down, feel the cells in my body trying to reorganize themselves to heal. And um, there are things we can do, of course, to take advantage of the physical healing process. And sometimes that healing process gets out of whack. And it's not our fault. Our body is still trying to help us. And our minds and emotions are much the same way. You know, there is this vast energy available to us that we can tap into. And we're often called to a spiritual path of some kind initially because of existential angst. And if we make more than half-hearted, once-in-a-while attempts at practice along the way, we eventually discover a way to marry this existential angst to insight and wisdom in a very powerful way. And in the process, it becomes a spiritual calling to lead a more intentional life, a life that I talked about last night in which the things that matter the most are not at the mercy of the things that matter the least. Otherwise, we're simply in a search for better programming and for yet another form of self-improvement. And to a certain extent, most of, most of us are initially motivated by this desire for better programming. I know I certainly was. And underlying this desire for better programming is the noble desire to be free. And in our efforts to satisfy this desire to be free, I've noticed that we often take one or more of five different curative paths. And we can wake up through any of these paths. That's the good thing. But it's also important to understand how we can be limited by them, how they can limit our horizons of practice. And before I talk about each in more detail, let me just list the five curative paths. First, meditation will fix or cure me. Two, I want to be a better person. Three, I want to be less fearful. Four, I want to be free of the conditioning of my family. And five, I just want to know how to carry on from here. And there's nothing inherently wrong with any of these five paths. And if you're familiar with the Enneagram, the, the concept underlying them is, is the same. Um, the Enneagram is something that came from the, the Sufis and was brought over here by Gurdjieff. And then the contemplative Catholics adopted it. And you have, you, you have one of nine places on this very interesting wheel. And none of them are very complimentary, believe me. Uh, you know, you think you want this one, and then you go, oh, I don't think so. Um, so it, it's just that they're identifying some issues for you that are particularly relevant to the form your habit energy has taken. 
And the Buddhists also have their equivalent personality type system that focuses on three types of habit energies. And in that particular system, you get to be either greedy, aversive, or delusional. Which one of those do you hope to be? You know? So the idea is the same with these five curative paths. None of them are inherently good or bad, better or worse than another. It's simply helpful to understand how we may be limited by the conditioning and habit energy underlying them. And while we may have some experience with all of them, one or two of them usually dominate our overall experience. The first one, meditation will fix me, is very common in our individualistic, achievement-oriented culture that's so dominated by the doing mode of mind. And with this approach, we're, we come to the, the cushion, usually expecting mystical and transcendent experiences, um, some form of enlightenment. Uh, we come wanting the end product. And this is really a major impediment to spiritual practice and people new to the practice I certainly know that I did had often have very romantic notions of what meditating will be like and they anticipate periods of silence as a guarantee of bliss and spiritual ecstasy and revelation and then they go oh my god I paid to do this and discovering that there's no meditation is initially quite disappointing And even for some of us who do stick with it long enough to find some relief in the concentration element of meditation where we're able to rest in that vastness, where we're able to find those moments that are so wonderful, where we're able to experience not only equanimity, but some bliss. And... But there's also a subtler form of spiritual ambitiousness that can show up if we start grasping at this. Um, When meditation begins to enable us to experience some of the deep realms of of concentration, um, that isn't the same as finding effective ways to deal with our feelings or the everyday, everyday realities of our lives. And as Tara was saying this morning, this path is very much about that. Um, So we don't want to just have one more thing that we attach to because without the ability to transform our feelings, our practice simply becomes a form of spiritual bypassing. And we don't meditate for the sole purpose of going deeply into ourselves and withdrawing from the world. We need to be aware of mistaking our glimpses of sustained levels of concentration as the destination, but we also need to enjoy them. They're wonderful. They're pleasant. We just don't need to attach to them. And our practice is, a, is about transformation. It's not about transcendence. And everyday practice is to develop wakefulness and attention and openness to all situations and people so we don't have to withdraw and centralize into ourselves so much. And we cultivate wakefulness not to escape from our thoughts and feelings, but to illuminate them. And usually our journey is one of very gradual and incremental levels of awakening. So we need to be aware of our 
our tendency to approach meditation as something that will fix us. And with practice, we are going to experience times of bliss and communion. It will happen. But we'll also fall back into separation and confusion. And both of those things, we have to find a way to be okay with both of those things. So mystical or transcendent experiences in themselves aren't what is significant along this path. They're just passing states that do little to change anything in our lives, including how we relate to other people, which is really the litmus test of practice. What's significant is the transformation of the dysfunctional habit energies and patterns of behavior that are holding us back from fully enjoying our lives. So the second curative path, I want to become a better person, is an example of the craving to become that I talked about earlier. And the positive side of this approach is that it can be the path to becoming a bodhisattva. There is an extremely positive side to wanting to lead an ethical life. The negative side is that we approach our spirituality from a basic sense of project mentality. And this leads to the cycle of suffering associated with trying to improve ourselves or our life circumstances without the foundational understanding that we already are everything we're seeking. And self-acceptance is the most important and hardest thing to do along the spiritual path. But without it, we are never free from the anxiety about non-perfection. We can never fully accept or embrace our own humanity and the spirituality, the divinity of our imperfections. And having faith in the perfection of our divine nature doesn't mean that we become passive participants in our own lives. Remember Suzuki Roshi saying that you're all perfect as you are and you could all use a little work. And what it means is that we do our best and our best is good enough that we do the next right thing in front of us without being righteous about it. And with the practice of mindfulness, we begin to face the deep spiritual questions of understanding who we are apart from all we possess and all we enact and all we perform. And we grow increasingly aware of how our values and aspirations and standards and judgments have been inherited from others. And we become aware of how we are the product of generations of ancestors and conditioned norms. And with this understanding, we're invited to explore what is authentic and meaningful to us. So with awareness, we often begin to be able to shed familiar strategies and habits and identities. Nobody can gift you the understanding that you're limitless consciousness, that you don't have to make something happen. The best any religion or path can do is inspire wonder. It can't explain the mystery. And if we cannot release ourselves to the understanding that we are an expression of the perfection of reality in some way, we will limit ourselves. 
And then we prevent the fully functional reality or the fully functional unconstructed reality that is our birthright. And due to our interdependence, we each have a different and unique locus within that unconstructed reality. So we're part of an interdependent team made up not only of those we interact with, but all of humanity. We can let go of the judging critical mind or at least stop finding it so interesting. A Zen master tells us that through the torn screen, he saw the Milky Way. All we have to do is become the awareness. Just be exactly who you are with all your human imperfections. It's okay. Love no matter what. Understand that being called deeply to practice is enough. You are enough. And when we don't practice with a goal of enlightenment or to make ourselves a better person, our practice itself is a demonstration of our enlightened nature. So mindfulness is about developing the awareness that enables us to remove the veils of confusion that obstruct the nature of reality itself and the deep knowing that we are a part of that reality. The third curative path is basically about the desire not to be so fearful. If we all struggle with the tension that is caused by the deep desire for safety and the equally powerful wish to discover a greater sense of mystery and wonder and adventure, there's not one of us that doesn't intimately know fear. And at some point, most of us also intellectually, at minimum, understand that control is not the equivalent of safety. However, fear of the unknown still guides us to dedicate immense energy and activity to creating a personal world that we can inhabit without being disturbed. And we fill that world with habit and judgment and belief and identities and assumptions to protect ourselves from unwelcome disturbances. There's no safe way to awaken the heart because it involves stepping out of our character armor in order to really let others as well as reality itself in. But once we surrender our reluctance to experience our inner demons, we will discover that there is very little in the world that can terrify us anymore. And it's only then that we can start to live the life we wish to live and not the life that's prescribed to us by fear or the expectations of others. And there's a great irony with respect to the search for a curative form of practice that will mitigate our fear. If we go in search of a form of practice that will provide safety, we probably won't find it. However, we will find safety in the discipline and container of practice itself. The fourth curative path, I want to be free of the conditioning of my family, is basically about disentangling relationships. That's something we'll spend our entire lives doing on some level. And we believe that understanding our family conditioning will free us. And certainly there's an element of truth, of, uh, an element of truth to this. Um, this practice encourages reflection. Reflection is a big part 
of the practice. It, it encourages us to be good curators of the museums of our past. But the danger with this path lies in the opposite end of the continuum of the spiritual bypass. Um, it lies in what I call psychological navel-gazing. And with this particular curative path, there's a lot of selfing, a lot of centralizing into the self. And we become stuck in a particular form of selfing that I mentioned earlier, an attachment to the wounded self. And when we are locked into self and attached to a wounded self, relationships with others can be a very difficult arena because our love for another becomes some subtle or overt version of what can you do for me? How can you meet my needs? And when this is the case, we often find ourselves locked into power and control dynamics with partners, with friends, with parents, with children. And mature love asks, what do I have to offer to bring you forward? And with mature love, the power and control dynamic gets resolved. And the participants are able to be allies rather than combatants in helping each other heal old wounds. And when we're not locked into the internal power and control dynamics of our relationship, the relationship becomes a source of gifts that can then be brought to the world. In other words, it's good for the people then. And with the attachment to a wounded self, the old childhood mantra, look at me, reasserts itself over and over. And we all have a need to be seen for who we are. We just need to be very wary of watching ourselves when we are totally dependent upon external approval and affirmation. Then when we're totally dependent upon looking for cues outside of ourselves and signs to reassure ourselves that we're loved, that we're wanted, that we're necessary. Those are needs, but we can fulfill those needs by turning inward. We don't have to sing the old songs of all of our credentials and achievements for this purpose. And what I found in my own life is that waking up always involves becoming less important in some way. We discover the great freedom in being no one special. A wise Indian teacher said, wisdom teaches me I am nothing. Love teaches me I am everything. Well, insight into our conditioning is, is helpful. There's a difference between knowing about ourselves and deeply knowing ourselves. When we wake up to the goodness and vastness of our true nature, we find that it is not possible to define or describe ourselves fully by any of our transitory credentials or definitions or judgments of ourselves or those of others. And there is in every spiritual tradition, a dimension of spiritual homelessness, which is a forerunner of discovering what it means to be at home everywhere and in all things. The Zen master said, when my house burned down, I gained an unobstructed view of the sky. So the enduring encouragement in all great spiritual traditions 
and teachings is to release ourselves from all forms of me and mine and us and them and to release ourselves from notions and categories. The fifth curative approach, I just want to know how to go on from here, usually reflects some form of unresolved aversion or grief that's very real for something that has occurred. Um, it's usually some form of trauma or some form of craving for the non-existence of something that we have no control over that has happened. And this approach is often the result of a very challenging, traumatic or tragic event. But sometimes it's also simply a form of painful dissatisfaction and dis-ease with the nature of life, with how things simply are. And so much of our time and energy and attention is consumed in trying to avoid and fix or eradicate the experiences that we don't like. And an equal measure is focused upon trying to find and secure and possess and hang on to the experiences we like and want. And this is the recipe for deep unhappiness, deep restlessness, and deep dis-ease. Because we're hooked into the cycle of pursuit and avoidance. And we find ourselves subject to endless mood swings and changing images of ourselves which are governed by the changing circumstances of our lives. And in this state, inner stability is always going to be at the whim of external events. And we all will experience moments in our lives when our world falls apart. People we have relied on disappoint us. We're separated through death or change from those we love. People we love have illnesses, mental or physical. They have addictions. Our dreams are surrendered in the face of more demanding realities. Our bodies become sick and age. Elements of our lives that we unconsciously thought were permanent in some way and on which we had based, our happiness suddenly vanish. But this kind of impermanence and change will continually sweep through our lives. Praise and blame, gain and loss, success and failure, pain and pleasure, beginnings and endings. None of these things are going away. And the basic reality of life is that it's unpredictable. It's impermanent. But this basic reality does not have to shatter us or sentence us to an unhappy or unsatisfactory existence. So to transform sorrow, to transform grief, we first accept it as a natural part of life. And surrendering our inclination to avoid or suppress the difficult moments in our life, we also surrender our deep fear of being overwhelmed or consumed or battered by those events. And in the meditation and meta instruction tomorrow, we'll talk more specifically about how to work with these things. But mindfulness practice is a practice of open acceptance. And it's our awareness and developing that awareness that reveals the illusion of helplessness. 
And we cease to be helpless the moment we begin to live in an awakened way. When we no longer feel compelled to push hurt away or to try to protect ourselves from experiencing it, then we can use it to develop a deeper sensitivity and compassion. When we no longer reject disappointment, we understand what it has to teach us about forgiveness. And when we no longer hide from change, we liberate ourselves to live fully. Compassion begins in each moment we're willing to receive ourselves and the world as it is. And this is what enables us to move from I want to be happy to a vast happiness and equanimity, independent of conditions. So these five curative paths represent both noble desires that bring us to a spiritual path as well as false horizons that can limit us. And an important part of our practice is becoming aware of these false horizons. Our practice develops the meditative tools of awareness to enable us to probe beneath the appearance of things so that we can open to the mystery, to the depth, to the interrelatedness of this fluid and changing life where nothing at all can really be pinned down or fixed by name or concept. And sitting and walking meditation encourage us to look deeply. When we look deeply, we begin to understand how we are continually viewing the world through a subject-object split or the limited perceptions of our conditioned and separate selves. We're over-identified with our thinking. And the practice is to know this moment just as it is, without adding anything or without taking anything away. And that alignment with things the way they actually are is the ground for wise reaction, wise response, and wise engagement in our collective work together. As we develop the ability to be fully aware and observe deeply in this manner, this boundary between the person who is observing and what's being observed gradually begins to dissolve some. And in its essence, this is the lesson of the joy of non-self, the lesson of no birth and no death, the lesson that form is emptiness and emptiness is form. Often we mistakenly consider this concept of emptiness, which is at the heart of Buddhist practice and Buddhist teachings as something beyond our grasp, but it's not. And to bring the lesson of emptiness home in a simpler way, I invite you to consider all the literature and research that now exists with respect to people who have had near-death experiences. They all describe the dropping away of boundaries between self and all other things, a profound experience of oneness and the inexplicable joy that comes from that. The Buddha often began his teachings on non-self by encouraging the investigation of the wooden carts of the time. He'd encourage his students to unpack or dismantle the wooden carts. And he'd say, is the wood the cart? Is the seat the cart? Is the wheel the cart? 
What's the cart when you take it apart? Does it have an independent self-existence? And the Buddha was encouraging people to recognize that though the cart has a useful conventional reality, that when you look below the appearance of the cart, it has an ongoing story, regardless of its appearance of solidity. It includes the wood that came from the trees, the sun, the rain, the earth that produced the tree, all the people and materials who built and sold the cart, including that cool person that at some point in history had the great idea that it would be a good thing to have something like a cart to travel around with and to haul things with. I've seen Ty use the same blueprint. He'll hold up a piece of paper and ask us if we can see the sun, the rain, the trees, the loggers, and all the other causes and conditions that had to come together to create that piece of paper. And he helps us understand that with the passage of time, that paper will simply turn into something else. And when you examine things in this way, what you see is a stream of conditions, the beginning of which is untraceable, that had to come together in a particular way for anything to come into existence, including this thing that we refer to as self. It's not a denial of the cart to say that the cart is made of non-cart elements. Likewise, it's not a denial of the self to say that the self is made of non-self elements. This is the law of interdependence, the basic characteristic of all beings and things is that they arise, they endure, and they fade away according to the laws of impermanence and interdependence. And as a teaching, the Buddha presented this quite simply. He said, this is this because that is that. Nothing can be found in the inner or outer world that has an independent self-existence. And to a certain extent, this is simply the law of cause and effect or the law of karma. And it should also be noted that the Buddha didn't take sides in the debate about whether an independent self exists. The Buddha said, before awakening, there is a sense of self. After awakening, there is a sense of self. And the difference is simply the view. Before awakening, this sense of an Isolated self is kind of an optical illusion in which we're over-identified with our perceptions, mistaking them for reality. And to understand how our perceptions can create the optical illusion of a false self, I invite you to simply examine your perceptions of the sun rising. Let's say, let's pretend for a minute that that's the, the east. The sun rises in the east, passes over us, and it sets over there in the West. And if we simply rely on our perceptions, we'll make the same mistake that our ancestors did. We'll believe the sun is going around us or circling us and that we are the center of the universe. And even though it looks like this is the case, most of us now agree that our perception is not reality. And because we know that this is an illusion, this illusion no longer has power over us. And the, the Buddha discovered exactly the same thing with respect to our conditioned perceptions. What the Buddha understood after awakening was that these elements of self, 
that we're also are over-identified with, the physical body, feelings, thoughts, impulses, and ordinary consciousness are impermanent. Just pockets of energy moving through us, they're subject to constant change and disillusion. So this worldly self or ego that we cling to so tightly isn't real because it's constantly changing into something else. And it actually has no enduring reality. And it's often one big, painful illusion. But the Buddha also taught that there exists within each sentient being this innermost essence, which knows of no change, no birth, no death. This self is within all of us, but unknown to most of us. It's what we've referred to as our true, our divine, or our Buddha nature. It is ultimate, unchanging reality. It's immovable, unshakable and full of peace. It endures forever. Death, harm, unhappiness can't touch it. And this freedom is said to be as indestructible and radiant as a diamond. And the Buddha referred to the discovery of the source of this everlasting happiness as nirvana. And this true self, like a treasure waiting to be discovered, is buried beneath all our mental and emotional baggage. And it can only be discovered when we have cleared away all the obscuring thoughts and emotions which hide it from our view. So underlying the concepts of, of non-self and emptiness is the notion of unity, the notion of oneness. And to try to wrap your head around this, imagine a drop of water. Imagine you take a drop of water and that you squeeze it from a little eyedropper and as you're squeezing it you can see its shape. And now imagine that you're dropping it into the ocean. Once it's in the ocean, can you identify its shape anymore? You're like a drop of water returning to limitless consciousness. When you're dropped back into that ocean of limitless consciousness, you can't identify yourself. But that doesn't mean that you cease to exist. We fake ourselves out. We forget who we really are. And we relate to ourselves as the waves rather than the ocean itself. But nobody can explain this mysterious thing called death. None of us have been there yet. And, you know, I tend to be a little bit of an agnostic uh, Buddhist. I don't really take sides in the debate about rebirth and reincarnation and all of that stuff. But I do believe that there's something available because I've touched it for me to take refuge in. Something that's inside of me as well as outside of me. And this teaching on emptiness requires us to begin to understand non-duality and paradox. Last year I mentioned that paradox is how ultimate reality looks to the dualistic mind. For example, this practice takes effort, but this practice is about non-effort. If I take that candle and use it to light another candle, is there one flame burning or two? If I do this, am I giving? 
or receiving. If you can understand that it is possible for both things to be true at the same time, then you are beginning to understand or get a glimpse of how to live in non-duality, how to live with one foot firmly planted in the relative dimension and one foot firmly planted in the ultimate dimension. Or you get, better yet, a glimpse of what it would look like to be able to live with one foot planted in the compassionate ability to let your heart quiver in response to suffering, while at the same time having the other foot planted in the vastness and the spaciousness of equanimity. And you get a glimpse of what it would be like not to require it to be one or the other. And once we understand that liberation and understanding come directly from this body and this world, we don't have to make distinctions between pure and impure, between good and bad. Because guess what? Beautiful flowers come from the compost of garbage. And true mind is discovered only in deluded mind. And as we begin to catch more and more glimpses of the freedom of non-self, we can also note with humor and compassion how it feels like our self is always there, waiting for us to slip right back into it, just like our favorite slippers. I can remember being on retreat and just finding that resting in the vastness, moving seamlessly from the sitting to the walking and just resting in it and coming in and somebody had taken my coat hook <laughs> or going to the walking path. Somebody was on my path. But if I was on theirs, they were being a little possessive. Um, you know, or I was at the Forest Refuge recently and I had, you know, I was just sitting there feeling my connection with everybody and then on the way back to my room, it's a, it's a co-ed facility, I went to the bathroom and somebody had left the toilet seat up and I'm like, Jesus Christ, give me a break. You know, so just that fast. Can't we have one frickin' social privilege in this world? Put the toilet seat down, you know? So just that fast, there I was, back into this very strong, solid sense of me and you. And that's okay, it happens. We have to have a light touch. So the understanding of non-self and, and emptiness teaches us to let go of all these fixed ideas that we hold about ourselves and about others and about the world. So I have to let go of my tendency to categorize this poor man as the guy that left the toilet seat up for the remainder of the retreat, right? <laughs> so, you know, it's just, it's just what it is. We watch. We don't chastise ourselves. We are human. And that is part of being human. So we want to embody a liberated heart. And what we see when we fix something in place with a concept is actually that we cease to see what it is. And in reality, nothing in this world is fixed, is static apart from our view of it. So when we're locked into self, 
There's so much solidity, so much room for ill will, for misunderstanding. And the teachings on non-self and emptiness, they don't attempt to annihilate or erase the self, but to dispel the confusion that's the origin of suffering and struggle and torment. And this is what opens the door to love, to compassion, to generosity, to kindness. So non-self is not about the detachment that makes you passive or cold-hearted. It's about releasing ourselves from the confinement of me, mine, us, them. And we come to understand that it's impossible to define or describe ourselves fully by any of the transient states and definitions that ripple through our minds or our hearts at any given time. And our practice leads us toward this heart of compassion, that enables us to accept ourselves with all our flawed humanity, as well as to accept others with all of their flawed humanity. So in conclusion, before awakening, there's a sense of self. After awakening, there's a sense of self. Before enlightenment, I chopped wood and carried water. After enlightenment, I chopped wood and carried water. With awakening, the difference is simply the view. Our existential angst brings, it's there for a purpose. It brings about a sense of spiritual immediacy with respect to the path to ending distress. And ending distress comes about by learning what to cultivate and nurture moment to moment by paying attention to what we're nurturing and cultivating moment to moment, paying attention to what we're feeding and not feeding. What am I feeding in this moment? Is kindness present? So it's possible for all of us to live in a more sacred and spiritual way. We can choose to feed the pathways of mindfulness, of remembering our true nature, of intentionality. And the intentions and aspirations we bring to how we live our lives are what transforms our lives. And that's why there's been so much emphasis on intention. That's why we started the retreat with aspiration. An intentional life is one in which the activities we engage in are an embodiment of the things we treasure. And although retreats are the training ground for this awareness, it's important to remember that what we engage in here isn't intended to just be isolated to retreats. It's a path that includes not just formal meditation, but cultivating an awareness that touches every area of our lives. And that's the promise of the practice of mindfulness. Let's just sit for a moment.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.